All right. Well, we're going to jump into our study of Proverbs again. And again, as we've been uh, moving through this study of late, we've been taking a bit of a subject approach to Proverbs. We did a little bit of a verse by verse through chapter at the very beginning, uh, early on in our study, but we've now been taking Proverbs and looking at various major subjects, major points of emphasis or categories of emphasis that you see uh, throughout Proverbs. As, as you know, if you've looked at Proverbs or read Proverbs or had devotions through Proverbs, uh, uh, just reference Proverbs throughout your life, you know that there's a lot of themes in Proverbs that are repeated, a lot of uh, practical points of advice or counsel and wisdom that are repeated, a lot of similar uh, metaphors and examples are used. And so I think that it's helpful, and a lot of uh, people who have uh, written on the book of Proverbs and a lot of approaches to commentary on Proverbs often take this approach to, to kind of divide the book out. They do some verse-by-verse commentary Um, And then they'll divide the book out into various categories or subjects to just sort of try to encapsulate or summarize the primary teaching from Proverbs on these main areas of focus. And so we're going to continue with that that approach to the book of Proverbs. But I want to start by getting some feedback from you, getting some uh, discussion going to kind of set our minds around the subject at hand today. Um, How many of you ever heard or used even, and maybe even in a joking way or sort of a sarcastic way, but maybe you've heard this from other people and it may be reflective of what they actually believe, where something happens uh, to them or to a friend, some event takes place, some action takes place, and it could be something as benign or simple as someone tripping and falling or... Uh, something as grand as them you know, meeting the love of their life. I mean, just kind of pick your, pick your event. But they'll, they'll make this statement, that was karma. That was karma. What do you think is meant when someone says, that was karma? Yes, sir. Meant to be. It was meant to be. Okay, what else? What are, or what are some other shades of that? Yes, yeah, so the, the, you, you, you did something that warranted that kind of good result kind of thing, yeah. Yes? Well, if there's some superintending force in the universe that either rewards or punishes people for their, their actions. Okay, so it could be a reference to something outside the person that's acting um, in response to events, if you will. Yes? Yeah, that's, that's usually what I, I hear that term used in sarcastic ways like that. You know, if someone has something to come, that's karma because you railed on me the other day and you deserve that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of the idea uh, of karma and it's, and it's sort of like, uh, you know, common use. I'm not trying to, you know, raise it up as a, as a term, a religious term per se. I mean, if you want to look at a definition of it from uh, just the Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary, it's kind of pulling from the Hindu, Hindu and Buddhist uh, ideas. It's the force generated by a person's actions, or it's the fate or destiny resulting from one's previous actions. That's kind of uh, one definition of karma. But it has to do with how, how events that occur in the normal ebb and flow of life have some greater meaning or purpose that's tied to something maybe a little more transcendent than just us in the event and what happened in real time. It has an element of transcendence to it or spirituality to it, and we oftentimes use it in, in a variety of ways to be maybe a little bit sarcastic, or even maybe it's the way some people you know, actually view the world in a very simplistic way, that, that life is really a series of, of occurrences taking place as a result of actions of people, and, and, and some of it deserved and some of it uh, not. What about this one? This is something that I, I've heard much more frequently in, uh, in our sort of confessing evangelical Christian church people. We're all, you know, Christians kind of world. Um, what about this statement? And I'm going to see if I can... Let me preface this by saying, if you happen to use this statement, please don't feel offended that I'm mocking you, okay? Because uh, it's possible, it's possible... Um, uh, but just roll with me here. It's already out there. I got to go. I got to keep going with this. That was such a God thing. Yeah? 
That was such a God thing, or God was so in that. You know that kind of phrase, that kind of locution, terminology? It was such a God thing, or God was so in that. Or how about this one? This is something that um, there's, I mean, in our, in our own sort of family, um, that not, not my immediate family, uh, thankfully, at least to my knowledge, but, but in our own family, our own extended family, this is a phrase that's often used, and it is reflective of a, a theological disposition, a, a sort of a settled kind of understanding of how God works. And it's, it goes something like this. You, can, you can't explain that any other way other than God. The idea is that usually these kinds of statements, it was such a God thing, or God was so in it, or you can't explain that any other way other than God. Usually those are in reference to the good things that happen, Right? Those are usually in reference to the fortuitous events of life. Because, of course, you know, if, if I'm driving all over a shopping center looking for a parking spot and then one opens up close to the, to the front door that I want to go into, that's clearly a God thing, right? God was so in that. Or even, even in more substantive ways, if I happen to uh, meet someone that um, knew someone that was a relative of mine and... And, and we, they knew someone that I knew 25 years ago, but we had never met. And all of a sudden, we're in the grocery store together, and we meet, and we start talking. And we find out that there's sort of a related uh, um, interest in a particular job pursuit, and they have a contact with someone in this particular industry. And the next thing you know, I land this incredible job, and it sets me off on this tremendously glorious new career path, then... You can only, God, it's, that's a God thing. You can only explain that with God. I mean, that's, only God could do that, right? So, in one sense, it's true, but it reflects something that is very limited and narrow and really erroneous in the view of how God works in his world. Um, there is sort of another more theological strain of thinking uh, that has, um, it's actually pretty, you know, developed some prominence and some uh, widespread adoption. Um, it's, it's comes from a book, or this really initiator started from a book called The Openness of God, or Open Theism. How many of you have ever heard of open theism as a, as a term or a theological um, area of thought? This, this idea of open theism, like I said, it's relatively new. It's, it gained popularity with the 1994 release of a book called The Openness of God. Uh, it was written by five evangelical scholars, and it was edited by Clark Pinnock. Um, and just to give you a, a definition of this idea of open theism, it's a theological construct which claims that God's highest goal is to enter into a reciprocal relationship with man. So the area of focus we're moving into is how does God operate in the affairs of man and in his world. Okay, so this is one, one theological uh, framework for it. That, that the highest goal, God's highest goal is to enter into a reciprocal relationship with man. And that in this scheme, the Bible is interpreted without any anthropomorphisms. That is, all references to God's feelings, his surprise, his lack of knowledge are literal and the result of his choice to create a world where he can be affected by man's choices. God's exhaustive knowledge does not include future free will choices by mankind because they have not yet occurred. The idea of open theism, or the openness of God, is that God has created a world and has created the operation of a world in which he is in a way or in a sense, subject to events that have not yet taken place, and in, in specific, the affairs of men and the decisions, the free will decisions of man that he can't know, he doesn't know. It is, it is really oriented toward, um, toward God being limited in profound and significant ways. It highlights God's greatest attribute of love, and in this idea of God's love, it overshadows his other characteristics. So, for example, one of the biggest sort of problems in, in faith belief is the problem of evil. You know, how, how could a good God allow bad things to happen, or 
How could a good God, an all-powerful God, allow evil to exist in the world? If he was good and all-powerful, then he would use his power to eradicate evil. I mean, that's kind of the, the idea. So, therefore, God must not either be all-good, or he must not be all-powerful, or he must be neither. I mean, it's that kind of you know, simple way of, of looking at it. Well, open theism would highlight God's love, and it overshadows all of his other characteristics, and primarily that he would never either allow nor condone evil. Okay, so that kind of gives God, that's the theological way of giving God a pass on this whole evil thing. That the reason that there's evil in the world is that God's not in control over that. That God is waiting to see how all this stuff plays out, in a sense. And so all the, all the evil actions of man throughout history, in the present, and in the future, God is engaged in reciprocal relationship, a relationship of love with his people, but these events and these occurrences and these acts of evil, he, he, not only does he not condone, nor does he allow, he doesn't even know them before they happen. Man has libertarian free will. His will has not been so affected by the fall that he is unable to make a choice to follow God. And God respects man's freedom of choice and would not infringe upon it. It also views that God does not have exhaustive knowledge of the future. He cannot know certain future events because the future exists only as a possibility. Yeah, so he, well, he's, he's really, really smart. Yeah, and very intuitive, but he doesn't know until it happens. So he's unable to see what depends on the choices of free will agents simply because the future does not yet exist, so it's unknowable. Here's another idea. God takes risks. Because God cannot know the future, he takes risks in many ways, creating people, giving them gifts and abilities, and so on. Where possibilities exist, so does risk. So in other words, God took a chance to create man and allow for the possibility of evil, and that's just part of his nature that he takes risks. But this really highlights the fact that his principal priority is to enter into a reciprocal relationship. You understand, like, almost even plain relationship. In other words, he's not going to force his love upon anyone. He's not going to force his way into anyone's life. He's looking for a genuinely reciprocal relationship. And so anything that would hinder that uh, would, would, um, would be a problem. And the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, it's this idea, it's really almost a, this idea, almost a, a romanticized nature of, of love and relationship where, you know, the, you, these stories where, you know, you're going to take a chance on love. You know, you're going you're to risk being vulnerable to someone. It's, it's that kind of very humanistic and really even emotive kind of view of this love relationship. God learns because God does not know the future exhaustively. He learns just as we do. God is reactive. Because he is learning, God is constantly reacting to the decisions we make. Now get this, God makes mistakes. Because he is learning and reacting, always dealing with limited information, God can and does make errors in judgment, which later require reevaluation. You know, this is drawn from passages in Scripture that use language, anthropomorphic language that was referenced earlier, Language, the language of a human that would uh, correlate to human understanding or correlate to actual humanness, you know, God feeling a certain way, uh, God, God regretting that he made man on the earth, for example, before the flood. He just, he regretted it. And so that would indicate, the, the natural logical conclusion to draw there is that he went, oops, you know, what, what have I done here? There's like this, it's, it's a misinterpretation, if you will, or I should say, um, it's a literal, humanistic, man-centered interpretation of anthropomorphic language in Scripture about God. God makes mistakes. He has to reevaluate. He has to reassess. And God can change his mind. God reali- when God realizes he has made an error in judgment or that things did not unfold as he supposed, he can change his mind. So this is a stream of, of belief and theology that is actually... Uh, it's been formalized, and there's been a lot that's been written on it. And in fact, it's not just um, held, up, held up in the annals of, of you know, highbrow 
uh, lofty theologian speak. It's not, it's not just you know, theological journals and, and weighty theological books. There's been uh, books that have been written to make this kind of theology, this kind of belief, much more accessible to, to you know, the average person. So this is, a, this is not just some small idea. And in fact, even when we might find ourselves saying things like, God was so in that, or that was such a God thing, we, we not necessarily consciously, but in sort of an unconscious kind of way, we are, we are referencing God or we are ascribing to God some characteristic of his activity in the world that is very much man-centered. It's very much oriented toward the interactions and affairs of man and his decisions and his will and his purposes and what makes him happy or what makes him joyful or, or what hurts him or what's hard for him or that kind of thing. So when we come to the book of Proverbs, we want to look at this particular subject and you might just say we want to look at the providence of God as, as one um, theological term to use here. Um, we want to try to answer the question, what is the nature of God's active work in the world and in the affairs of men? Now, again, we're not going to sort of completely comprehensively address this issue, but we are going to survey some Proverbs that deal with this and deal with this very directly and deal with it very differently than karma or sort of a cavalier, you know, when things work out in my favor, God had to be in that, or it was such a God thing. Or this more um, subversive and toxic theological movement called open theism. We're going to look at Proverbs and how it deals with it in a much different way. But anytime we approach this kind of subject, uh, anytime we approach an attribute of God that's, that's a part of his... Um, sovereign, transcendent nature. There are elements of transcendence involved in what he's revealed about his providential working in the world. We have to approach this subject with a great deal of humility. The challenge with most of us is that we want to know with certainty how things work, how God works. We want to make sense of everything and make it make perfect sense and perfect logical sense in our sense of logic, our understanding of logic, and, and we can become, without maybe even being aware of it, we can become arrogant in our approach to attain to some kind of understanding. In other words, we can say, unless or until I can grasp this thoroughly, I'm not going to believe it explicitly as it's revealed in Scripture. I'm going to reserve judgment until it makes sense to me. And I'm, and I'm just saying that when you approach the character and nature of God, particularly when you're talking about his transcendent nature, his, his, the characteristics of his otherness, where he is altogether unlike you and me. And providence deals with that. We have to approach it with a great deal of humility. And the fact of the matter is, is that this, this arrogance that we're so inclined to is is particularly pronounced in, in the, the quarters of, of erudite men and women who are focused on the study of the natural world, for example. In the area of science, uh, mathematics, physics, that kind of thing, there's no shortage of, of really uh, 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 arrogance and pride because the way that God works in his world and the way that he reveals that work in his world in Scripture does not satisfy the super-intellectual mind for how they think this should make sense to them. And I love what Blaise Pascal, the 15th century mathematician and physicist, physicist and philosopher, brilliant, accomplished um, man, I love what he says about when, you, when, you, when you're studying God's world and, and what is at work in his world, the absence of humility in that study, or it not engendering true humility, is a, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point of utter amazement to him, he says. He says this, What amazes me most is to see that everyone is not amazed at his own weakness. Man is quite capable of the most extravagant opinions since he is capable of believing that he is not naturally and inevitably weak, but is, on the contrary, naturally wise. 
When it comes to the study of God and of his dealings, especially his transcendent nature, things that are only ascribed to him, we have to approach this with a great deal of humility, recognizing that there are elements of this that we can't understand. And by the way, the fact that we can't understand it only redounds to the glory and greatness of God all the more. Imagine a God that you could fully encompass. That's all of a sudden now you. That's not a God who's altogether other and transcendent and powerful and sovereign and all-knowing and all-present and all-wise. So, again, humility is, is the order of the day. There, there are many who would argue, when you start thinking about Proverbs as a source for understanding uh, theological matters, I'm, I'm going to be asking you guys to tap into your inner, inner theologian here in our, in our study, but there are many throughout the, throughout the years, really for many, many, many years over time, who have really criticized Proverbs as, uh, for its lack of theological depth, um, even, even criticized it um, as a very man-centered book. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a book that's principally aimed at disseminating human wisdom, that really its ultimate objective is to instruct men on how they can be prosperous and successful in this life. And so Proverbs would not be readily a source that many theologians might go to to understand some, some theological principle about the nature of God. Oftentimes it can be criticized for its man-centeredness, if you will. And of course there is a lot of practical instruction about if this, then that, and its relationship between man's action or decisions and how those actions or decisions would affect him in this life and in this world for good or for bad. But the fact of the matter is, is that Proverbs contains no shortage of, of sound theology that's in accordance with the rest of sacred scripture, with the rest of inspired scripture. It, it is in very much alignment. And in this area of, of God's providence or God's working in the affairs of men <coughs> and in his world, um, it's, it has some very, very clear instruction, very straightforward. And, and Proverbs is a book that is not just a man-centered set of worldly principles to help men be successful, men and women be successful in this life. Um, Bruce Waldke, one of the commentators that I rely on, he wrote a, a paper um, a number of years ago, back in the late 70s, he wrote a paper that I read, it was really good, a journal article, um, on this very subject of the criticism that Proverbs has, has received for this, uh, for its lack of, um, you know, for its lack of reference to the, you know, the covenant people or God's covenant, it lacks sort of this, this strain of instruction that, that uh, uh, is focused on the flow of God's covenant relationship with his people um, as his redemptive plan unfolds. But uh, Bruce Waldke talks about this. He, for one example he gives is that when you look at, at how God is referenced in Proverbs, um, the, the covenant name Yahweh occurs alone in Proverbs explicitly 46 times and, it, and 38 times in various combinations for a total of 84 usages in Proverbs, the covenant name of, of Yahweh. And then the Elohim, uh, the, the transcendent name of Yahweh, um, appears five times in Proverbs. And Walke says this, the distinct meaning of these two names is widely recognized, whereas the title Elohim contrasts God with man in their natures. The name Yahweh presents God as entering into personal relationship with man and revealing himself to him. More specifically, Yahweh is God's covenantal name, and by using this name, the sages present themselves as teachers within Yahweh's covenant community even though they never mention Israel or the covenant. So there's where the criticism kind of lies. Well, it doesn't really speak of Israel or the covenant, and so it's really... And, and, and because some of the teaching in Proverbs can be compared to uh, non-Hebrew, sort of secular or pagan teaching, you know, wisdom literature, um, it gets criticized. But the fact of the matter is that it's filled with the covenant name God, the usage of it, and assumes that that's, uh, that's, that's who this is about. They present themselves, the sages present themselves as spokesmen for the same God who encountered Israel through Moses and the prophets that succeeded him. So, Proverbs is a, a, a great source of sound theological 
understanding about the nature of God. So we're going to take a look at that. Because when you look at Proverbs, you could, you could find a whole range of, I mean, if you're trying to kind of look at Proverbs and do a systematic theology study of Proverbs, you, the study of God, you could look at salvation, you could look at um, various categories of systematic theology. Um, you'll find elements of it there, but what is really prominent is God's sovereignty and his sovereign work of providence in his world. It's very, very prominent. We see God, to start with, as a sovereign creator. We've looked at a few of these passages in the past, but just thinking of God's sovereignty in creation, Proverbs is very explicit about that. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 to 20 says, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deep deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. And then Proverbs 8, 22-31, in, in that uh, one of the passages in Proverbs where wisdom is personified, wisdom is sort of the speaker um, in this section of Scripture. And so the, the reference point here, uh, uh, the person that is referencing themselves in this passage is is wisdom being personified. It says in uh, Proverbs 8, 22-31, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, me, wisdom, at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before He had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made, the firm, uh, made firm the skies above, and when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his commands, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So this is just a testimony of how God, in his wisdom, created the world. So you see clearly this, this theological principle of God as sovereign creator. But he's not just a creator who set the world up, created everything, and then just sort of set it in motion to operate according to established and uniform natural laws, which is some uh, form of belief that people have, that yes, God did create, there is a creator, there is a powerful creator, but really the way God works in the world is he sort of allows the natural laws that he established to work on their own, independent of him. And that's really not the way you see it played out in Scripture and in particular in Proverbs either. He's not just the creator who set this world in motion to be governed by these laws of nature that he established, but nevertheless he's sort of stepping back and just letting things play out according to these laws of nature. A very, very different picture in Scripture and in Proverbs in particular. Michael Horton says this about this point. He says, We frequently distinguish natural and supernatural causes, but this too, may, this too may reflect the false choice of attributing circumstances either to God or to nature. The scriptures know nothing of a creation or a history that is at a single moment independent of God's agency. The question is not whether God is involved in every aspect of our lives, but how God is involved. Therefore, with respect to, the pro- to providence, the question is never whether causes are exclusively natural or supernatural, but whether God's involvement in every moment is providential or miraculous. And this is often a mistake that people make when they think of God's working in the world. It's not uncommon for people to ascribe miracle to what is actually providence. I mean, you could say, I got the great parking spot at the mall, and it was a miracle. There's only, you can't explain it any other way, because it's the way I saw things play out, and it was just, there's no way I should have gotten that parking spot. It was a total miracle. And really, it was just a, a kind providence. It was providence, not a miracle. So, again, just understanding uh, some distinctions there. So, when we think about God, we're not just seeing him in Proverbs in particular as this sovereign creator who's sort of a set it and forget it, set up the laws of nature and let it roll. But he is a providential ruler. He's involved. He's engaged. He's sovereignly working um, in in a variety of ways. Now, to think about this, um, 
I'll just give you kind of a, a definition. This is the Westminster Confessions um, description of this. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So that's the Westminster Confession's take on providence, on God's sovereign working as the creator, the upholder, the sustainer, the ruler of all things, from the greatest to the smallest. So let's look at a few of these uh, principles, these, these, uh, these ideas of providence as we see them play out in Scripture. And of course, there's intermingling of God's just sovereign work um, of his observance of things as well as of his active engagement in, in directing things. But you could say that, that in his sovereignty and in, in according to his providential governance or rulership or oversight of the world in active ways, he is exercising what you might call surveillance. He is aware of all things. And, and Proverbs gives us this, this idea. Uh, he's aware of outward conduct. He sees what's going on. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In other words, that's just a statement of comprehensiveness. Every place, every kind of act, every kind of conduct, that he has visibility, surveillance, and it's, it's intended to, to, to give an image of active awareness, not just a passive sort of like letting things roll. It goes deeper than that, this, this idea of God's sovereign surveillance. He's not just observing our outward conduct, but he's also very much aware and attuned to our inward motives. Proverbs 15.11 Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Sheol, this place of the dead, or the place of departed spirits, and Abaddon, the place of destruction. So he's saying, the, 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 the secret place that no man can see, the, 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 the afterlife, ideas of, of the afterlife, the place of the dead, God see, that's laid bare to him. There, there, it's, it's not a secret to him. How much more so, he says, are the hearts of the children of man. So it's not just that God sees things as they happen, but he sees the hearts of men and the motives that are driving those actions before they even happen. And it's laid bare. I mean, it's just this vivid picture of no lack of visibility, no lack of clarity, no absence of understanding. So just in the area of his his awareness and his visibility. See how that totally contrasts with this idea of open theism where he can't even know the thing until it happens. This is a complete contradiction to that, just in the area or the category of his conscious, active awareness, this idea of sovereign surveillance. And of course, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just God saying, I see you, I see what you did, I know what you're thinking. It gets much more intimate than that. Because God not only is exercising sovereign surveillance, he's exhibiting sovereign engagement and rule. Proverbs chapter 21, and I'm going to read several verses, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll skip down to verses 30 and 31. This couldn't be more explicit. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He turns it. That's like an active engagement. That's not sitting back and letting the laws of nature run their course. And this is a reference to a king. This is a reference to the ultimate human authority. So it's, it's this ascribing greater authority, greater sovereignty to God in his control. So the king, in the same way the king exercises sovereign control over the people whom he rules and can turn them any way he wants, there is a sovereign above that king, that greatest king, and he has sovereign rule, and his rulership is like a stream in his hand. He just turns it in whatever direction 
he sees fit. You go on to verse 2. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So even, even man thinking that he knows right from wrong, knows the right way to go, his own knowledge of himself is, in, is inadequate compared to the knowledge of God. It doesn't even compare to God's knowledge of man's heart. God weighs the heart. He judges the heart. Verse 30 of chapter 21. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. And then verse 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So even in something of of a very physical, real, tangible action of nations battling nations in battle, the the writer of Proverbs would caution us to think that somehow this victory lies in the strength of our horses alone. Not so. The victory belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 16, verses 1 to 9. This is a much more comprehensive look at God's sovereign work and His providential dealings, His engagement with power and authority and visibility and sovereign wisdom and omniscience. Proverbs 16, 1-9 says this, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Uh, one commentator said you know, the, the, that man might make his plans, but God always has the last word. God's always got the last word. He's always got the final say. So the devising of plans that we make is subject to the ultimate sovereign will and purposes of God. And he works those, that will and those purposes out in and through the affairs of men, whether it be in attaining victory in battle or whether it be in getting a parking spot. He works those things out in the affairs of man as he wills. On on Ford it says, verse 2, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Verse 3, Then the call, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So there is a reference to our engagement in committing our work to the Lord, but it is the Lord who establishes those plans. It is the Lord who sustains us in our efforts to please Him and honor Him with our work, with our effort. So there's a dependency there that's referenced, a dependency upon the sovereign work of God. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. He has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. So this idea of trying to somehow protect God from having any control or oversight over evil things or wicked things or whatever, Proverbs doesn't give him that quarter. Proverbs is not afraid to ascribe to God control over even the wicked things that happen. He's not the author of evil, but he is certainly not outside uh, of its control. Imagine a world in which God is subject to the evil dealings of men, the evil will of men. I mean, it's the idea that God has within himself power to act, but he often doesn't act because he's waiting to see how things play out, because he doesn't know the future. He could act, but he doesn't because he doesn't know exactly how things are going to work out, and he's reacting to things. This is not the picture you have here. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. So, you have God at work in judgment. Verse 6, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So again, a reference to our posture before the holy God to protect us from evil and to give us power and strength to walk in righteousness under the fear of the Lord. Verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. In other words, more reference to God at work on behalf of man, actively engaged in this process. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with justice. And then 
probably the more familiar verse to us in this subject. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. His, his very steps. It's, it's, it's giving us, it's breaking this down to incremental concepts of human activity. Even his very steps, the Lord establishes. And then chapter 19 of Proverbs, verse 21, similar idea. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So, you have this indication of man planning and thinking. Man is a rational creature. Man was created in the image of God. Man is not a robot. But it is ultimately God who is at will and to work for His good pleasure. It is ultimately God who knows the end from the beginning. It is ultimately God who, even in light of man's plans, will establish His steps. Will establish His purpose in the midst of those plans. So there is this working in the affairs of man, in the planning of man, in the rational faculties of man. But the the point of humility and the point of appropriate disposition is to recognize that we don't don't own our destiny. We we, we don't control this world. And, And we are inclined to think or believe that we do, but we don't. And in light of all this, what it points us to, and this is what Proverbs does so wonderfully well, as does the rest of Scripture, is when you look at God's sovereign work, in the lives of men, starting at creation, all the way through to redemption, to the judgment of the wicked, to the restoration of his world, ultimately. When you look at God's work, it is a clarion call for men to wholeheartedly devote themselves to complete trust in him. Complete and utter trust and devotion to him. In other words, trying to figure out how to make sure that God doesn't get blamed for something like evil. I mean, how do you answer a question like the Holocaust, right? Let's go to the big you know, event in our known history of the Holocaust and say, how could God possibly allow something like that to happen? We've got to come up with a, theolo- a theology. We've got to come up with a theological framework that absolves God from having any activity, any oversight, any allowance of such a dreaded thing to take place, that only diminishes God before men. That's all that does. But looking at this from the standpoint of the teaching from Proverbs explicitly, and then you could expand it out and look at the rest of Scripture and see, what, what a true understanding of God's sovereign work, and in particular His imminent work of providence in our day-to-day lives, His control, His working things out... Yes, using the laws of nature and working in them and sustaining all things and upholding all things by the will of His power. Yes, working in the affairs of men and the decisions of men. Yes, turning the king's heart in the way that he wants it to go and working in the rulers of men. All of that upheld before us should draw our attention and our focus to an overwhelming sense of trust and devotion to the Lord as sovereign ruler who is not just large and in charge, transcendently above us, but is actively engaged in this life, accomplishing His purpose. And as we know, He is working all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, as it says in Romans. But let's look at Proverbs chapter 3 and kind of wrap up this thought. Because this is really what, what we need to be drawn to, I think. One of, one of the responses that we should have to our, our, our growing and conscious awareness of God's sovereign work in our lives and in this world. Familiar passage of Scripture to all of us, and it's one of those passages of Scripture that it's so familiar that we can sort of rush past it. Verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. So, there's this relationship here between full and complete trust in the Lord and recognizing 
that the reason that you need to have that kind of trust is that you can't possibly trust yourself completely. You can't possibly lean on your own understanding. Don't do it. Do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Again, another reference to his involvement in your life, actively, daily. As you, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In other words, if you want to think about this in the context of active, growing relationship and devotion and love and worship, of God, the more you and I are consciously aware of His active work in our lives, the less we are either relying upon our own understanding or subconsciously adopting ideas that are more like karma than anything else. Like, our lives are just a series of events, and if we kind of do good things and do the right things, and good things will happen to us. And if we do bad things and the wrong things, then bad things will happen to us. And let's just admit that sometimes our thinking can sort of get reduced into those simple and foolish categories, right? But what Proverbs is calling us to is to say, no, 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 keep before you always the sovereign, providential working of God in the greatest and smallest affairs of your life. And He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Even in the place of discipline, verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So, When something adverse is happening in your life, could it not be something other than karma, bad karma? What Proverbs would call us to is to recognize that God is at work in the smallest details, even in the things that that feel like weighty or adverse harm to you. It could be that what you're experiencing, even in pain, is the loving, active work of discipline in the same way that a father disciplines a son. You can't give a more intimate image than that in understanding or thinking about the providential working of God in your life. So what we have in Proverbs is we have this picture, this vision of God, who is a God sovereign in his creative work, created the world in wisdom, the foundations of the deep, all of it is his. But he's also a providential ruler who's actively engaged, exercising aware, conscious surveillance, observing all the affairs of men, outward actions, inward heart motives. He is overseeing, superintending, and even directing the decisions and directions of kings and rulers that have effect on all the people that kings and rulers rule over. He's actively involved in establishing even the various plans of your own heart and setting those up for you and establishing even your very steps incrementally. Even when we're facing evil and overt evil comes our way, Proverbs cautions us. It says, do not say, Proverbs twenty twenty two, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. There's a call for us, even as the people of God, to not feel like that we have to provide the karmic response to people who treat us unjustly, who bring evil harm our way. Because, why? It is the Lord who will deliver you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, is another way to put it. In other words, God is even involved in bringing about justice for evildoers, even in your own life. And he calls us to not repay evil for evil and to trust him, to not lean on our own understanding, to not be wise in our own eyes, to be fully devoted to him and to understand that he is at work even in disciplining us to make us more like Christ. That's just a very brief picture of God's working in providence from the book of Proverbs. And it should draw our hearts to Him and cause us to worship Him in His sovereign, loving, active care and concern for us on a day-by-day basis.
Any closing thoughts or comments before we pray and are dismissed? I would love to share a story. This whole point was driven home to me um, earlier this year. There's a teacher at our school who, um, when her youngest daughter was five, she and her three kids were in a really bad car accident, and her youngest daughter suffered a very traumatic brain injury, and um, just she's she lived, but she's a completely different personality. She's wheelchair bound, you know, just requires lots of cares. Been through lots of surgeries, and um, earlier this year, my cousin's daughter was um, had a brain injury after being in a tractor trailer accident, and. Um, it was my cousin's divorced, and so the mom normally would have had the kids, but she had the flu, so he had the kids, and so, you know, it was just, you know, circumstance or whatever that they were, um, you know, even on the interstate that morning going to school. So was, the teacher at our school kind of sought me out to just offer her, you know, just making herself available if, if they wanted to talk to her since she had lived through this. and. And I commented to her, I said, well, pray for the mom because she's really dealing with a lot of mom guilt, feeling like she should have just kept the kids and not sent them to their dad's house, that she could have done it even though she was sick. And, and she said, she said, you know, I see that as God's providence because she said the day we had our car accident, um, she said everything about that day, just plans had been changed multiple times, you know, things had been delayed where we were, roads were closed, she said, the fact that we were where we were when we, had, when we had the accident, she said there was no, you know, we were never at that place at that time, and it was only because of all these other things that changed, and she said, this is just what God had for our family, and, you know, it's just his providence that that's where we were at that time, and, um, and when I look at her two older kids and how they deal, how they treat, and just are so loving to the, to their younger sister, it's, it's such a beautiful example of how God has worked in that family, and mm. it's just, it, it really does just bring amazing glory to Him. And I just thought, wow, for someone to mm. be able to take such a hard circumstance yeah. and just really see God's providence in it, it just, it really drove it home to me. That's great. That's great. Anyone else before we close? <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that. I just say briefly that I think, you know, any professional Christian that wants to escape the idea of God's sovereign control end up with some version of opiate. Right. They don't want to admit it. Right. Um, I, don't, I don't believe there's any real ground there. You either embrace God's sovereign control or you end up embracing <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's, it might not be uh, sophisticating, sophisticated in its description, but it's where you end up for sure. Yeah. All right. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Thank you.